Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Alnervi podcast series. I'm Kara Wolf, a junior associate in the INO Luxembourg tax team and today we'll be discussing the reverse hybrid mismatch rule on Data2 together with my colleagues Johanna Churchenthaler, counsel in our Luxembourg tax team and Stephanie Yulitu, a senior associate in our Luxembourg tax team. So we chose to place a spotlight on this rule because it is one of the more recent additions to the Luxembourg Tax Authority's arsenal of measures against tax avoidance. And also because it is a rule that is very relevant to a large number of Luxembourg fund structures. But before we dive into the details of the reverse hybrid mismatch rule, let's start with a quick recap of the basics and some background maybe. Stephanie, would you mind explaining what ATA2 is and why it was introduced in the first place? Sure. Um, well, actually, uh, Johanna, uh, who's here with us today, and one of the partners in our team, Patrick Michaud, have already published a podcast covering the general ATA2 framework. So I think that will be worth a listen for anyone interested in ATA2 more broadly. What I do think is relevant for today and worth reiterating is that whilst the other ATA2 rules came into force in Luxembourg in January 2020, The reverse hybrid mismatch rule only became applicable as of January 2022. So we've just seen the first round of tax filings for the year 2022, and it's therefore a rule that's obviously fresh uh, on everyone's mind. Thank you, Stephanie. So, Johanna, could you now please explain what the reverse hybrid mismatch rule is? Of course. Let's maybe start with an example. Imagine a Luxembourg fund that is set up as a limited partnership, so an SCSB. This is a common structure for many funds in Luxembourg because the SCSP offers a lot of flexibility and benefits. However, not all the countries see the SCSP in the same way as Luxembourg does. So in Luxembourg, the SCSP would be considered as a, as a tax transparent entity. That means that it does not pay tax itself, but its investors do on their share of the income. Now, For some other countries like France or Italy, or think about the US and the check the box rules, or China, they may treat the entity, the SESB, as tax opaque. So they would look at the SESB as a separate taxpayer. And this creates a mismatch, because ultimately the income from the SESB may not be taxed anywhere. Not in Luxembourg, of course, because there the SESB is tax transparent. And also not in the, in the countries of the investors, because essentially they wouldn't have the right to tax it until there is an actual distribution. This is what the reverse hybrid entity rules tries to, tries to prevent. And the rule says that if there is a link between the investors and the fund, so the SESB, and if none of the exemptions apply, and we'll come to that in a second, then the SESB essentially becomes a tax-opaque entity in Luxembourg and has to pay tax. And this is, of course, not a desirable outcome for funds where you need to ensure some sort of tax neutrality in the structures. Very clear. Thank you, Johanna. So you mentioned that the reverse hybrid entity rule may apply if there is a link between the investors. But what exactly is this link you are referring to? Th that's right, Chiara. So essentially, there needs to be a minimum level of participation by the investors in the fund entity so that the rule can even kick in. The relevant threshold is 50%. This can be 50% of voting rights or capital ownership, but also entitlement to profits. And if that threshold is met, then the investor would be an associated enterprise of the fund. Now, it's important to remember that Just like with the other ATA2 rules, this 50% threshold needs to be looked at both 
on a standalone and also on an aggregated basis. So what do I mean by that? Well, in certain cases, an investor may be acting together with other investors. And in such cases, you would need to aggregate the interests of the various investors in that group to determine whether the 50% threshold is met. There is some discussion about you know, whether by default you need to aggregate investors in a fund holding more than 10%. So this discussion comes from the fact that in Luxembourg there is actually a rebuttable presumption that in the law that if you hold less than 10%, you are presumed not to act together with other investors. Uh, unfortunately, there is no clear-cut answer as of today, but we do think that there are good grounds to think that or to argue there is no need to aggregate those investors. Except, of course, where on the facts that group of investors would indeed act together. And we've had actually quite extensive discussions on this point with our other European offices. And it's very interesting to see that, you know, different positions may be taken by jurisdictions on these points. But let's also not forget that if this 50% threshold I was mentioning, Chiara, is met, in addition, you would need to ensure that at least 50% of those investors which are indeed associated enterprises treat the entity as opaque. So you need to always bear in mind that there is this sort of double entry condition. Okay, that's very interesting. Thanks, Johanna. And I'm, I'm just wondering, how often do you see these requirements being met in practice? Stephanie, could you maybe share your experience on that? Sure. Well... It's actually more common than you might think, even in a funds context. So it's true that there are many fund structures which are widely held and where investors hold almost insignificant amounts of the overall interest in the fund. But we do equally see a lot of separate managed accounts, for instance, where the associated enterpriser test that Johanna was referring to is quite easily met. And even in open-ended funds, we often see investors investing in a fund structure using, for instance, a number of their group companies. And in that case, you'd, of course, need to aggregate the interest of all these companies to determine, you know, whether the relevant thresholds mentioned earlier are met. I suppose another slightly tricky point to bear in mind is that you could also have a carry structure in your fund. Um, And that would mean that the carry holders may become associated enterprises when the carry vests. So you always need to look out for what uh, profit entitlement they also hold uh, in your fund structure. And so that's it. If a structure meets all of these conditions we just discussed, the rule applies? No, no. Um, no need to panic just yet. So uh, there are a few points to bear in mind. Um, the first is that the law provides for a specific carve-out from the rule for so-called uh, collective investment vehicles. And that is defined as an entity which meets three conditions. So firstly, it is, needs to be widely held. Secondly, it uh, needs to hold a diversified portfolio of securities. And thirdly, it is an entity that is subject to investor protection regulation in its jurisdiction of incorporation. So the unfortunate thing is that we don't cur currently have any formal guidance on how to interpret uh, the carve-out. So we can't be sure that the tax authorities would necessarily you know, take share our view or even the view of the market on this point. Um, and let me just give you an example of a point that's controversial. So whilst it may be easier to argue that in a private equity context, the second condition that I mentioned relating to Uh, diversified portfolio of securities is met, the same can't be said, for instance, when you're looking at a real estate fund. 
And equally, um, there's also a question mark over whether the carve-out could apply in a debt fund context, where the underlying investments are loans, and obviously means they're not securities, um, rather than bonds, for instance, which are securities, or for instance, where you have a fund that holds a mixture of both, so bonds and loans. So given all the uncertainty, I think we would generally recommend being um, cautious when relying on this carve-out for the purposes of the ATA2 analysis. Definitely. And on a separate note, Stephanie, I, I think it's also worth mentioning an important and helpful amendment to the reverse hybrid rule that was passed in December 2022. The change to the rule means essentially that the rule doesn't bite where the non-taxation of the income from the fund at the level of the investors, is a result of the investors' tax status rather than a result of the different characterization of the fund entity. So think about investors which are tax-exempt, for instance, in their jurisdictions, or investors which are resident in a jurisdictions that levies no tax. Such investors would not be considered as associated enterprises, and that independently of their stake in the fund. And this amendment is obviously a welcome clarification. Well, Johanna, that's excellent news indeed. Um, I'm just wondering, what happens if the rule nevertheless does apply? Stephanie, can you run us through the implications? Of course. So in a worst case scenario, um, and as alluded to previously, this reverse hybrid entity would become subject to Luxembourg corporate income tax. And that it does include the um, solidarity surcharge. So for 2024, um, that rate is 18.19%. I guess the silver lining uh, in all of this is that the taxation of the funds or the relevant entity's income is pro rata to the proportion of sort of so-called bad ATA2 investors. So it's not necessarily the case that all of the fund's income will be subject to tax. Well, that's still quite a harsh outcome. So are there maybe any ways to ensure that such a hybrid mismatch isn't created in the first place. Yeah, I can speak to that. Um, so there are various ways of mitigating the impact of the reverse hybrid entity rule, as well as the other ATA2 rules, by the way. So for instance, coming back to our funds example, uh, we, we considered at the beginning, we are increasingly seeing sponsors opting more for opaque entities rather than transparent entities. So we would now see on the market more RAFE SCAs or RAFE SAs rather than unregulated SCSBs or RAFE SCSBs. This being said, though, as for transparent fund structures, which are, I have to say, still very common, there is definitely more pressure today on ensuring that the fund documentation, notably the limited partnership agreement, correctly allocates any ATA2 tax leakage to the so-called bad ATA2 investors Stephanie was referring to before. And the sponsor will also want to ensure that during the onboarding session, it is collecting all the relevant information and data from the investors, for example, via the subscription agreement. And ultimately, it is important to know that it's for the sponsor to carry out the ATA2 analysis and to take a filing position. So it will want to ensure from the outset that it has all it needs in terms of information to take a position. And obviously, I would say that ongoing monitoring of a moving investor base is also essential and highly recommended. Wow. So that means that sponsors will need to be pretty organized. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, I guess my final question is whether there's any sort of guidance from the Luxembourg tax authorities on 
how the reverse hybrid identity rule ought to be applied and interpreted in practice, given it impacts so many actors in Luxembourg. Funnily enough, uh, although it is the most recent ATAD2 rule to come into force, it is in fact the one that the tax authorities have decided to issue guidance in relation to. So perhaps I can first point out the omissions um, in the guidance. So the circular issued by the Luxembourg Tax Authorities in June 2023 doesn't address, for instance, whether the reverse hybrid entity rule trumps the subscription tax regime that applies to um, a lot of fund structures. Nor does it comment on, as I mentioned previously, on the collective investment vehicle exemption. Um, And that's obviously, you know, a missed opportunity. It does, however, provide certain helpful clarifications. Um, We obviously don't have time today to discuss all the contents of the circular. Um, Listeners are obviously very welcome to reach out if they have more detailed questions. But perhaps I can mention a few points that are covered and are probably worth flagging. So firstly, um, this circular clarifies that the reversed hybrid entities are not standard opaque entities, meaning that the whole panoply of you know, the normal tax rules applicable to normal opaque companies will not apply necessarily to a reverse hybrid entity. So for instance, a reverse hybrid entity cannot rely on the participation exemption. It is also not subject to the controlled foreign companies rules, and neither is it subject to the interest limitation rules. And in addition, distributions made this type of entity, for instance, um, are not subject to withholding tax. And secondly, the guidance from the tax authorities clarifies that reverse hybrid entities will in principle be invited to or uh, be required if, for instance, the entity has carried out its analysis and has determined that it falls within uh, the reverse hybrid entity rule. In these cases, they'll be required to file a new tax return. um, And that's now a form called uh, 205. That needs to be filed by the 31st of December following the relevant tax year. Well, there's clearly a lot for sponsors and investors to be thinking about and keeping an eye out for. Not only will they need to think about how to structure the fund, but they will also need to ensure that any tax risks are correctly allocated, the relevant information is collected and the tax filings are made. Thank you, Johanna. Thank you, Stephanie, for sharing your thoughts on this very interesting topic. I think this brings us to the end of our podcast. To those of you listening who might be interested in finding out a bit more about the reverse hybrid entity rule or to or any of the other 8.2 rules, please feel free to reach out. Mm-hmm.